Hi, I'm Mark Razor. And I'm Megan Nadolsky. Welcome to Behind the Design. Behind the Design is a podcast series where we explore the trends and creative ideas that go into making hotels look the way they do. So first we should probably tell you how this all got started. I work with a team that designs the hotels. And I'm the editorial director for Merit. One day we were having lunch and we started chatting about all the different lobbies that we'd visited on our work trips. And we started talking about why lobbies look the way they do. And Megan found out it's not as simple as you think. It depends on where you're staying, of course. If you're in a small boutique, that's very different from if you're staying in a large luxury property. Some hotels have big fancy bars and some don't, just a check-in counter. Yeah, all of these different hotels that we're seeing are not only different levels of service. Hotel lobbies are constantly evolving. And so what we might be seeing in the lobby is just places that are at different stages of evolution. And a sign of our times, right? Right, exactly. So in order to really uh, understand, you have to think about what the very first hotel lobbies were like. And they were these grand hotels. They were built like palaces, super fancy places, and they were only for the upper tiers of society. This was the era that we're calling the era of the grand hotel. And they stayed that way. Hotels and their lobbies stayed that way until about 1960. Those are the ones we see in those really cool old black and white photographs where people all, are all dressed up, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. No, those, those. And, and as railways and ocean liners sort of emerged on the scene, more of those were built, and, and they became a phenomenon and an entire era of this grand hotel. In the golden age of travel. Exactly. But just what you should know about these grand hotels, I think what's important is that they were built and owned by local businessmen, and so they really represented the local character. They, uh, and, and, and they fit in their surroundings. So it wasn't like somebody from America was going and building a grand hotel in China. That just wasn't happening then. So hotels don't really look like that anymore. There aren't these big grand palaces, or they're very rare. Yeah, so what's interesting, a couple things happened. The first thing that happened is the Cold War began. And during that time, Joseph Stalin planned this vast, luxurious hotel in Moscow called the Hotel Ukraina. And he put tons of money into it and just made this giant symbol. So it was supposed to symbolize Soviet might, right? Definitely. It's not intuitive to me that that would be a symbol of Soviet might, but that's what it was all about. And, um, and this guy named Conrad Hilton... I know that name. Yeah. So Conrad Hilton decided uh, that he would go ahead and build hotels abroad, declaring them as part of America's fight against communism. So this is basically what started the globalization of hotels. Yeah, because this is the first time that you see someone from one country building hotels in a country that they don't live in or know even necessarily that much about. And this ushered in what a lot of people think of as the second era of the hotel lobby. And it kicked off this sort of mass industrialization of hospitality. Uh, and, and so what, what happened during this time is that hotels became more consistent because it wasn't like they knew anything about the local character. So they sort of had to develop this consistency as a, as a differentiator. This is during the time period when travel was becoming more accessible to everyone because travel was getting cheaper. 
Yeah, exactly. And interestingly enough, there was this American entrepreneur named Ellsworth Statler. This guy was ahead of his time. He was the one to coin the phrase, a room and a bath for a dollar and a half. And the Marriott family took this phrase and later turned this method into a science. So we felt like the one person we really had to talk to was Mr. Marriott to explain the origin of the Marriott lobby. And we're better to meet up with Mr. Marriott than in the Marriott headquarters lobby. So we were hoping you could give us a little bit of a history lesson, Mr. Marriott. What was the first Marriott lobby, and what was the what was the concept behind it? What was important about it? Well, the lobby that uh, was really the first one was in Dallas, because we had a drive-in uh, check-in and check-out at Twin Bridges, which is our first hotel, and at Key Bridge, which is our second hotel. So we checked them in and checked them out at a drive-through window, okay. like McDonald's has today. And, uh, you know, it was our first attempt at revenue management because we could look inside the car and count the number of people. And if we were busy and there was a single that came in, we saw we're full. If it came in with three or four people, that was the one we'd take because we'd get an extra dollar for each person in the car. Yeah. And uh, then we, we designed Dallas and there was no place to put a drive-in, drive-up spot. So we had a typical hotel lobby where you checked in at the front desk, went to your room and and that was about it. There was a little bit of seating in the lobby. People would wait for somebody to show up that they had an appointment with. But there was no activity in the lobby other than check in and check out and perhaps waiting for someone. And when did that start changing, too, when you started adding more seating in the bars? And it's been in the last few years. It hasn't been going on for very long, and uh, probably the last seven or eight years. Huh. And is that something that guests wanted and asked for? It was a trend. You know, most hotel restaurants... Uh, are kind of passe today. People want to go somewhere else to eat, generally. And I think one of the things that's made a big difference is moving the bar into the lobby, because then people kind of say, well, I can sit at the bar here and I can get a snack, I can get a beer, I can get a Coke, I, whatever I want to get. And um, then there's, there's seating around the area, so it becomes an area of high activity and high of interest on the part of the customer. And obviously it helps with revenue, too. And this keeps them in the hotel, gives them something to eat in the hotel, gives them a chance to meet with their friends in the hotel and visit. Okay. So, so I think you've probably been to more hotel lobbies than any person <laughs> on the planet. I'm willing to bet. I, I'm pretty sure. So do you have any favorites, and, and why are they your favorites? I know you're not supposed to play favorites, but we're asking you to. Well, today. obviously the one that's the most dynamic and and interesting is the one at the New York Marquee in New York because there's a lot of food service, there's a lot of drink service, there's a bar, there's tables and chairs for a regular meal and then to make it all exciting you've got these elevators going up in the uh, atrium, up and down in the atrium, they're lighted and they're exciting and it's fun to watch them go up and down but it's a lobby of tremendous activity and tremendous interest and that really is kind of the pinnacle of it all. Cool. So and now I have to ask you, what what don't you like to see in a hotel lobby? I know you're an opinionated guy. I don't like to see empty seats. <laughs> and Mr. Marriott should be happy. The industrial hotel concept has been an economic triumph, in addition and perhaps due to bringing hospitality to the masses. But over the years, its uniformity began to equal emotional failure. The hotel lobby became a place of impersonal blandness, machine-like. So I guess our dilemma is how do we get back to the personality and vibe that was alive and well during the first era of the Grand Hotel, but how do we also make that available to, well, everyone? We decided to drink on it and called in Derek Brown. Derek's been called in to talk about this stuff before. 
Oh, yeah, he's a uh, spirits and cocktail expert, right? Yeah, but his day job is owner of the drink company, which heads up four of Washington, D.C.'s most respected watering holes. He just advises us from time to time. Hey, Derek. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm fantastic. So I have one very important question to start. Sure, shoot. Mixologist or bartender? Yeah, this is one of those words that's pretty contentious within the bartending community um, for a couple of reasons. It's, you know, it's sort of like if you're talking like a hairstylist uh, versus a barber. Um, but the thing is about the term mixologist is it goes back all the way to 1857, I think. Uh, it was in uh, uh, a magazine, an American magazine, and it was sort of a joke initially. Um, and then it caught on. So many really well-respected bartenders use the term mixologist. And, um, Jerry Thomas, who wrote the first bartending guide, uh, was one of them. And so it's really hard to discount the term. I don't like when people just kind of discount it and say it's not. But it, but it is true that I call myself a bartender when, I, when I'm bartending. Um, in the media, they tend to use the word mixologist, and I'm pretty much fine with both of them. Yeah, it seems like a marketing thing. You yeah, know, you this uh, is my favorite <laughs> Yelp review that I've ever had. I haven't had many personal Yelp reviews, but my very favorite one, which was negative towards me, um, they said, what does this guy think he is, some kind of professor? All he does is pour things from a large container into a small container. <laughs> we know we asked Derek to come in and talk to us about lobbies, but we couldn't help ourselves. So uh, we, you know... We also, now we, now we know that you frequent a lot of bars mm -hmm. be, beyond your own, yeah. your place of work. <laughs> I drink a lot. Uh, so <laughs> well, I was like, <laughs> what are people ordering? What, what, what's, you know, what's trending? Yeah, the, 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 the number one in sort of two drinks that I see ordered over and over again is Moscow Mules and Old Fashions, right? Uh, the, the Moscow Mule has kind of become the, the uh, Cosmo of our time, right? Like just if you look back in the... Okay, guys, the he went on for a while. But you're probably asking yourself, so what does alcohol have to do with design? We're getting to it. You know, alcohol does something very powerful. Uh, many things very powerful. But one thing in particular that does powerful is that it helps us concentrate within our environment. So there's this uh, theory called myopia theory, and it basically says what alcohol does to our, our sort of consciousness is that it limits our awareness of externalities, right? So that's why it's got a, a calming effect in terms of, I mean, we're, we're talking about buzzing, not block, blackout drunk, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a different thing. But it, it helps to calm us, it helps us to be more sociable, it helps us to connect to each other, right? Uh, definitely if you want to hang out with a friend, catch up with an old friend, you're going to have a drink there, right? Um, and so you want to create bars where people have those moments and that they're not impeded upon by buzzing refrigerators, awkward lighting, uncomfortable seats, um, you know, music that's too loud, too soft. Um, you, you really just, the bar is set there to be a backdrop to their great moments, you know? And, and I guess a lobby should be that too in some ways. Um, it shouldn't be like, look at me, look at me. I mean, a certain amount, so it attracts people to it. But then it should also let people be themselves and have their own space in it. Mm -hmm. But So how do we get our lobbies to be like your bars? 
I think there's kind of like a, a and, and in general with, with hotels, that there's a problem that there's these multi-usage spaces. You know, the idea is like, let's make it a place where they can sit on their laptop. Let's make it a place where they can grab a drink. Let's make it a place where they can check in. Let's make it a place where they can get coffee in the morning. Let's, you know, and um, that just kills a bar vibe, you know. Like a bar should be a place that's either kind of sexy or dangerous or comfortable. There's different types of bars for different types of experiences. But what one thing that kind of unites them all is that you're in a bar, you know, like it feels like a bar and you know when it doesn't. And, and that bar will give you cues to that kind of experience you should have. You know, you know when you walk into a, a honky tonk, what kind of scene you're going to be in. You know when you walk into a dive bar, what kind of scene you're going to be in. So when you, you confuse that by having like a glowing sort of case of that that, that um, person knows will have pastries the next morning and they're sitting in a bar trying to score with somebody you know like it's just a bummer and and definitely like in terms of i also think of carpet you know when i think of hotel lobbies i think of bad carpet choices all the time yeah it just makes me feel bad yeah i like that bad hotel no, carpet. Carpet. you're right though i don't want to see carpet <laughs> It's like seeing carpet on a subway on the metro. Like, why, why does <laughs> that exist? <laughs> no, the thing is that, like, ultimately our jobs are similar. We make people happy, which is a pretty cool job. So an example of one of those bartenders that I really think is exceptional in the hospitality is, is, is Erasmus Willard. Um, actually, just known by the name Willard. He was only known by one name, just like Madonna. Uh, and that was because he was the first celebrity bartender. And he was known uh, across the continents uh, because literally they found letters from England talking about this incredible American bartender. And Willard, he's so good. He remembers my drink every time I go. He remembers my kids' names. And, and that was one of the things is he had a um, photographic memory. So, so he was really great when people came into the bar. And, and that's the funny thing is that the bar and the lobby were basically the same thing. When you walked in, you saw Willard, you got a drink, right? And you he would remember your kids' names. He'd kind of catch up with you a little bit. Um, and then you'd feel right at home, even though you were many miles away from your home. He was well-known in his time. He was one of the most famous people in New York at the City Hotel um, because of this. Um, and also, he, was, he made great drinks. For Derek Brown, a bar and what you order in it should make you feel comfortable. It should have personality, and so should our hotel lobbies. It's a feeling, and that brings us to our third era of hotels, the era we're in now. Okay, let's call it the boutique hotel era. This era offers a different solution to the problem of impersonality. It can be traced to 1984 in New York when a hotel was opened by Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell called Morgan's. It was the first boutique hotel, and it's been described as desperately cool and importantly different. The idea was for the hotel's lobbies, restaurants, and bars to be filled with locals rather than an extension of the airport lounge for lonely executives. It was built on the notion that hotels might bring in customers based on their interest rather than income, and that no matter the customer's income, they can stay in a well-designed hotel. I honestly think that that's why I was hired, because you know, I purposely was hired to look at the select service brands. This is Lionel Sussman, who leads up design strategies for our select service brands. Those are the everyman's hotels. They have an affordable price, limited service models, and limited offerings. 
Fairfield Inn, Courtyard, Residence Inn, just to name a few. They were designed properly, and they were designed um, to ensure that we met the customer needs. But they were not, the way I would describe it is that they were not, they were not necessarily um, driving design. Design was not necessarily the driver for the brand. Before accepting the job at Marriott, Lionel worked for Starbucks, the very company that corporatized the idea of a third space, which is exactly where we want our lobbies to be. Uh, we know that um, um, millennial consumers grew up, are, are growing up in a space where no matter what the, um, the, the price is in consumer goods or experiences, good design needs to be part of it. I think the perfect example for me is IKEA, right? So IKEA has been doing that for many, many years, where it doesn't matter if it's less expensive, it can still be properly designed and be cool and be uh, appealing. It's smartly designed. I think about Target, too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Target you can too. get a teacup or, you know, yeah. tea yeah. kettle. But yeah. why does it have to be designed? Why does it have to be ugly? Mm -hmm. like you can still <laughs> spend the same money and make it look beautiful. And I think that's what this consumer is expecting. They expect design on everything that they consume. So what are the elements that go into designing a good lobby? There's obviously the check-in desk, but should there be a cafe? Should there be a restaurant? Does there have to be? What is that checklist that you have? Sure. I think that's a great question because for me, the most important thing is to create a cohesive experience from the moment you see the hotel from the outside to the moment you walk into the room. That experience and that um, journey has to be cohesive. So. Um, each brand has its own, uh, its own components. There's always a welcome experience uh, that might be a check-in. I think in all of our brands, there's always a place to land. There's always a place where you clearly walk in and you know where to go. Mm. I think that's important. It's important. Uh, this, uh, we, we always find, especially in the select service brands, that most of our guests arrive for the most part in the afternoon. And they're usually coming from either a long flight or they're coming from meetings all day and they uh, want that experience to be seamless. So they have to walk in. This is a select service brand where they have to know where they're going and they want that check-in to be fast. So after the check-in, what we always uh, try to do is make sure that before the consumer or the guest goes to the room, they understand what else do we have available for them. But we, when we design the space, we also make sure that that's pretty um, uh, self-explanatory. So when you arrive, it should take you just a couple of minutes to really understand what the public space is all about. We talk a lot about the, everyone knows the front desk counter, but in some places it's a, it's a desk, in other places it's a podium, and now it's, in some places it's a person with a tablet. Um, yes. What do you do when that space starts shrinking or you actually have more space now to design with? It's interesting because we just went through a redesign of uh, Courtyard, and you know, technology moves so fast, and we see those uh, trends changing so fast, that for me, it's all about being an opportunity to have a space that can be flexible in the future. So a lot of times, uh, the way we think about designing this check-in experience, and, and we did uh, something interesting with uh, Courtyard, is that we, it's not so much about what are we showing in the drawings today, it's like, how do we create a space that can transform in the future? 
if if we have pods, do we build them in a way that if in six years the technology changes and that goes away, we can take those away and they're built in a very efficient way that can be taken away and we can use that space for something else. So it's really about, because it's technology driven and technology changes so fast, for me it's all about flexibility. Yeah. And the way we're thinking about it is the way um, retailers think. If you think about how retail um, works, a typical uh, fashion retailer usually has four seasons during the year, and they need to be able to transform the store four times a year. Um, we're thinking with that mindset. How do we create architectural bones that are timeless and also smart about technology, uh, mechanical and engineering elements like lighting, air conditioning. So we create a space that when we want to change it, we can just change a few things and create a very different experience. We kept trying to push Lionel towards talking about technology, but we were just thinking about it the wrong way. Turns out designing for the future is just knowing that we won't know what we need for the future. And designing spaces that are malleable enough that our lack of foresight won't matter. There's more to it than that, but that's where it starts. We want to make sure you have a cohesive lighting design that can flex in the future. So introducing dimming systems, uh, creating grids of light lighting so you can switch fixtures in different places and being smart about creating a flexible envelope is key. And when it comes to materials, uh, same thing. If we, I mean, carpets are something that, you know, um, uh, set carpets that wall-to-wall -wall carpets in a lobby are really something that we're not seeing anymore. There it is again, carpet. I can't believe how much we are talking about carpet. Um, first of all, we don't, we don't think aesthetically it's something that we like. They're always dirty and it, they, they don't make sense. But if we use smaller rugs uh, and we use a material on the floor like a tile or a, um, a stone or a wood floor that is timeless, then after six years, after 12 years, which are usually our renovation cycles, we don't have to touch those. We can just replace a few carpets, change our soft goods, and really create a completely different experience. And it also feels more modern, too. It looks more modern. Yes, yes. Modern and clean. And uh, we learn, uh, you know, in uh, AC and the Marriott rooms, we're not doing um, hard surface in the rooms. And we know from consumers that uh, not only they love the look, but the idea that um, when you have hard surface, you know it's clean, because if it's not clean, you, you will notice it, yeah. is something that consumers really, really love. Huh. Which makes sense, right? Yeah. yeah. Who wants to be in a dirty yeah. carpet? <laughs> the other thing we learned from hard surfaces in the rooms, which is I thought it was uh, fascinating, is like if you drop coffee in a carpet in a room, and you're staying in the room, you're not gonna clean it because you can't. People actually clean the hard surface because they see it and they're not gonna leave it there. So people, the guests themselves, are actually cleaning the floor if they actually uh, drop something on well, the floor. That's interesting. You're you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You can't clean a carpet, so uh -huh. even if you wanted to clean it, you won't clean it. So I've noticed in a lot of lobby spaces, there's a lot of furniture that has outlets um, either built in or USB ports. Um, the, uh, you know, we're at a, living in a time when we carry so many devices with us and they need to be charged at all times. But um, I'm curious, when did you start installing that type of furniture? It, it's been a while, and I, I, it's not just the lobby, it's also in the rooms. Uh, we know that when someone walks into a room, usually they instantly require 
at least two outlets for a few of the devices. Uh, I also see some brands trying to overdo it, where they do very complicated things. Uh, that's the part that we have to be careful about. We, we don't want to create like an outlet shrine because technology is going to change. We are raising a lot of um, retailers and um, hotels incorporating uh, wireless charging. So we know it's going to change. So for me, it's all about making sure we are uh, staying uh, up to date on that, not overdoing it, um, but um, making sure that we have the, the right solution. Uh, there's also a lot of great um, uh, things we're seeing with outlets that are more temporary, so easy things you could do to a nightstand that didn't have outlets. You can add a device that has four or five outlets very easily. Mm -hmm. So this is a lot of ways to solve it, but it, it is important, but I also think we have to be careful uh, with, again, making something too permanent that in 10 years we might be thinking completely different. So again, it's really thinking like a retailer. Um, you know, really spending your money on creating a great infrastructure that is flexible and really everything that is going to change after six years, which is usually the soft goods, the loose elements, just have fun with those and really, you know, be trendy with those and, and, and give those a lot of personality and step back on the elements that are going to be there for 20 or more years. So, Lionel, talk to us about the lobby of the future. I think the, uh, for me, something that I'm uh, fascinated about and um, that I, I always question in my mind, especially when it comes to select service hotels where most of them are not necessarily in an urban environment, I'm um, always amazed about how little our lobbies are used. They're heavily used during breakfast. Depending on the brand, they're heavily used in the evenings. But from 11 o'clock to 5 o'clock, they're empty. This is a lot of space that it, we're air conditioning, we're lighting, and it's a great space, usually in very good locations. So I always feel the lobby of the future um, has something to do with sharing more, with using the space for other purposes. Um, there's so much, uh, there's so many people that need space, that need uh, a place to gather, that I, I think there's something there. We're starting to see. Um, competitors like um, there's this brand called 21C Museums Hotel where the lobby is actually a museum, a properly done museum. So I think there's something there. There's, there's, uh, there's an opportunity for our lobbies uh, to be more than a lobby. And I, and I think there's, it, it's something to do with engaging more with the communities you're around because uh, consumers and even consumers of hotel brands are looking for experiences that are more locally relevant. So what is more locally relevant than bringing the community somehow into the lobby? So it's really about uh, being locally relevant to where the location of the hotel is and engaging with the community. That's what really creates a third place. That's what's and that's it for this episode of Behind the Design. We'd like to thank Mr. Merritt, Lionel Sussman, and Derek Brown for sharing their time with us. Marriott Traveler.